and we're also deep in the bowels, the stinky, fetid bowels of Pinchon Land. Hell yeah. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pinchon. Thomas Pinchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. Hey, welcome back to Slow Learners, a podcast about books, and in particular, Thomas Pinchon's Gravity's Rainbow. In this episode, we're going to enter the third part of the book, and we're going to have a conversation about the Herrero people, German colonialism, and all that stuff. But first, let's just get our bearings. Today, we're talking Gravity's Rainbow Part 3, Chapters 1 through 5, and I would say that this is where things finally get weird. Yes. Uh, we're getting into the third and longest, and I think probably the second strangest section of the book, which is titled In the Zone. Mm-hmm. The epigraph of this section comes from The Wizard of Oz. It orients us a bit. It says, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's for darn sure. Reminds me of Dorothy. Uh, uh, otherwise, though, things are pretty disorienting. World War II is over, and the novel diverges, at least World War II in Europe, we should say, is over. And the novel diverges even further from the historical record. We are now in The Zone, which is the name that Pinchon gives to post-war Europe, which is being carved up and rebuilt from the rubble by a gaggle of competing interests. So by and large, this whole section follows Slothrop, who at this point is still posing as a British journalist Ian Scuffing as he navigates The Zone in pursuit of info about the 00000 rocket and the Estorot and Imipolex. Mm. This is info that he hopes will unlock something about his own personal history. Now, he begins by learning that, as a baby, his father sold him off to Laszlo Jamp for experimentation in exchange for some money and the promise of a Harvard education. Classic. Classic. This is how all these guys get into Harvard. That happened to me. It's no big deal. You went to Harvard? No, I got sold off. Oh, cool. Uh, An intermediary in this purchase is a character named Lyle Bland. He's a Slothrop family friend and a practicing mason who used the Slothrop's family paper milling empire to try and disrupt Weimar-era inflation by printing his own German currency, or Notgeld. Mm. 
Sothep's first stop is Nordhausen, which is home of both the Mittelwerk V2 manufacturing plant, which we talked about with Jordan Bim a few episodes back, and the abutting Dora concentration camp. En route to Nordhausen, we'll meet a bunch of new characters. The most notable are Major Dwayne Marvey, who's kind of this menacing, cartoonish American intelligence officer who's chasing Slothrop around the zone, Oberst Einzian, a Herero leader of the Schwarzkommando, and Vaslav Chicherin. Is that how you say it? Vaslav Chicherin. Yeah, Chicherin. Vaslav Chicherin. And he's a Soviet officer who's also scrambling for rocket info and for Einzian, who is his half-brother, whom he despises. We also meet Jelly Tripping, a lithesome young witch who works with Chicherin. Wearing Chicherin's boots, Slothrop makes it to Nordhausen and finds this kind of underground tourist attraction that's dedicated to the rocket. There's a dense and I think pretty fun meditation on the double integral symbol, which is used in rocket science calculations to mark Brennschluss. That's the point at which the rocket kind of exhausts its fuel and is carried along by momentum and then by gravity. The symbol recalls the German runes that Slothrop studied in the last section, as well as the Nazi SS symbol, as well as two lovers curled asleep. Mm. Isn't that sweet? Cute. Reminds me of Slothrop and Katja. Slothrop is chased underground by Major Marvy. It's this kind of madcap railroad chase. In the third chapter, we get deep insight into the Herrero Schwarzkommando, who have been hiding out in and around the tunnels of Nordhausen. Einzian, and also Chicherin's father, was a Russian sailor who slept with a Herrero woman. We learn of Einzian's past relationship with Captain Blasero, formerly known as Lieutenant Weissman, when he was a German colonist living in the German Southwest colonies in Africa. We also learn that Einzian and some other Zone Herrero see the rocket as a symbol of world extinction. They view the total obliteration of humanity as the logical end of the colonial project, which has subjugated their people and shaped their bitter enmities. The mission can be regarded as vaguely empowering, I guess. They're taking active ownership over their own demise instead of merely disappearing due to dwindling birth rates. This conception of the rocket and its purpose puts Einzian at odds with another Herrero, Joseph Ambedini, who leads a rival faction called the Empty Ones. Picking up with Slothrop, he has scaled the Mars mountain and is snuggling with Jelly Tripping. We learn that one of Slothrop's early colonial ancestors was sentenced to death for witchcraft. Jelly helps Slothrop escape to Berlin in a basket of a hot air balloon piloted by a guy named Schnorp. While in the hot air balloon in midair, he gets in a cream pie fight with an airborne Major Marvy. And finally in the section, we learn more about Chicherine. He's described as a scavenger whose broken body is threaded through with metal and gold. He's almost this kind of proto-cyborg character whose metallic body signifies something about the uneasy melding of man and machine that reoccurs throughout the novel. Mm. Like most of the novel's semi-sympathetic characters, Chicherine is a bit of a loser. He's a Stalinist functionary and outcast who has been sent to ferret out Nazi rocket secrets from the zone. He worked helping to reform the Turkic alphabet in Central Asia and operated alongside survivors of the Kyrgyz revolt against Tsarist rule. This is another genocidal event resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Again, as with the colonialism stuff or even the story about Franz von der Groove and the extermination of the Dodo, Pinchon seems to be suggesting that the death camps of World War II didn't exactly come out of nowhere. Chicherine in his past life also parlayed with an IG Farben rep named Wimpa, Wimpy? Wimpa. Wimpa. I imagine him like Wimpy from Popeye. Wimpe. Wimpe, who worked with Laszlo Jomph. Things are seemingly connected, or is it just random chance? 
In Central Asia, Chicharine hears of something called the Kyrgyz Light, a faraway flash that is reported to produce a form of transcendence. Is this a reference to Soviet rocket tests, which occurred near Kyrgyzstan, or a more abstract form of enlightenment? A Gnostic opening of the third eye, perhaps? Knowing Pynchon, it is probably all of these things, or even none of them. But the Kyrgyz Light clearly seems to be some kind of deep-rooted quest for Chicharine, sort of comparable to Slothrop's quest with the 00000 rocket. And these two pursuits will continue to see these characters entwined. Wow. Well, I guess, Asher, it's time for us to kind of get into the weeds of this part of the book. Mm -hmm. What strikes you as interesting as we head in the zone? Yeah, so, well, one thing I was sort of interested in is a lot of things in this novel are make-believes or, like, fictional versions of certain agencies, but one thing that's real is E.G. Farben, the German chemical company. Um, they become quite important in this section, but I was, I, I couldn't remember, is this the first mention that we get of them? I think earlier in the book, when they talk about CryptoSam, which is the chemical that's put mm-hmm. on <laughs> that, right. that, pi- that pirate apprentice kind of activates by jacking off onto it. But anyways, I think Crypto Sam is uh, developed by IG Farben. But you're right that in this part of the book, IG Farben, which is an actual German chemical mm-hmm. concern, or rather a multinational chemical concern, abounds in part three of the book. Can I just ask you, I think a lot of people... Conspiracy-minded people and just historians in general put a big importance on E.G. Farben. Um, can you just give us like a background and why they, why it's so important? Well, it's important in the novel because it represents this uh, chemical cartel, which, as Wimpa says, is the very model of nations. I.G. Farben is responsible for a number of the kind of imaginary chemicals that come up in the book, including cryptosam. In real life, I.G. Farben was sort of notorious because... During the Second World War, one of their subsidiaries was the group that made Zyklon B gas, which killed over one million people in the gas chambers of the Holocaust. And during the Nuremberg trials, there were like a dozen plus, almost two dozen people uh, who were tried for war crimes. Thirteen of them were convicted. Uh, And it's interesting because it is ostensibly, quote, just a company, right? And from my limited understanding, I also think that they helped Germany sort of make this leap that they had always struggled with, which was raw materials. Germany was always a big industrial power. They always had a great, a lot of technology, but they had trouble getting oil. They had trouble getting rubber, things like that, because Britain basically had a monopoly on colonies where these raw materials came from. And from what I gleaned, E.G. Farben basically learn how to make synthetic versions of those things so that the Nazi war effort could be chunky. Um, speaking of like pre-Nazi and the build-up to Nazis, we get some stuff about Hugo Stinnis and Weimar Republic economics um, and specifically how they're connected to the Slothrops and this guy Lyle Bland who's called Uncle Lyle. Can you just like explain that to me? Yeah, so Uncle Lyle is this guy who is a sort of wheeler-dealer figure, like a number of people in the books. Uh, There's a very cool chapter involving Lyle Bland that comes up later in the book. But basically, Lyle Bland was this intermediary who essentially fenced Slothrop 
to Laszlo Jamp for these experiments. Uh, and we talked a bit earlier about how Slothrop is kind of the endpoint of this once illustrious family that came over uh, with Mayflower type people into the Americas and settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then founded a sort of paper company, which is framed as a way of them destroying the natural environment that they first came to colonize. And in the 19, late 1920s and 30s, during the Weimar era, Lyle Bland used this paper company to print a sort of black market currency that he tried to flood Weimar Germany with in order to create an alternate to the Deutschmark. So Lyle Bland is this figure who has his fingers in a lot of pies. And it's also said that he shorted the Hugo Stinnis crash, i.e. the Weimar economic crash. Right. He had a big role in essentially the devastation of the German economy <clears throat> because, again, he wanted to get people to use his currency. So essentially, while Slothrop is riding on the train to Nordhausen, he he has this big biographical mystery so up into one piece around him, which is that he has been under surveillance all of his life, either by... National intelligence or E.G. Farben's corporate intelligence or maybe both. Um, I wanted to ask you one little more question about this. So it says that there's sort of code names for Tyrone and his father. Tyrone is Schwartz Knabe and Broderick, Tyrone's father, is Schwartz Vater. Mm-hmm. Why Schwartz? Well, this will become clear a little later, but yeah, Schwartz means black. We heard about this a little earlier when it's like he has the Roseland ballroom scene where he's, you know, surrounded by uh, black jazz musicians and that whole scene. And there's obviously an anxiety around blackness and black people that recurs in Schwartz, sorry, that recurs in Slothrop psychology. And the firm or the people who are kind of pointing Slothrop in different directions are attempting to exploit this psychology. Okay, so speaking of Schwartz commando... This is the section of the novel where we like realize they're real from a character's point of view experience. You know, we've heard okay, they're probably real, but now we see that they're real. So it's sort of a tease at the end of the last section that these videos that have been created for Operation Black Wing uh, to create this sort of what we would now call disinformation that they were trying to seed through Germany is actually real. That there actually are Herrera rebels who are sweeping through Germany uh, as this kind of not quite a liberating force because the war is already over, uh, but they're definitely on a proverbial war path. And we learn in this section that they are, in fact, real. Um, now, there's something complicated going on here where it's like, well, was this just an op to create the sense that they're fake, to hide the fact that they're real? Or is there something more sort of metafictional going on or metaphysical on a fictional level right. where these things that are the work of imagination are somehow manifesting in reality? Mm. Um, I don't know. I think the the latter one – I don't read books like that. I do, well, I do think there are cases in the real world where that has happened, right? Where things literally – Like ISIS? Well – According to Adam Curtis, at least. But I'm saying, like, there's a way to view it where, like, they're literally materializing out of nothing. Yeah. Like, in almost a, a magical way. Gotcha, gotcha. I don't want to say magical. Well, what stupid. do you think? 
Uh, well, no, I think it was probably just, I, I mean, I think the idea is that uh, Pinchon's trying to blur this barrier between these things that are being created or imagined for military propaganda purposes and things that are within at least the fiction of the book actually happening yeah. in order to create that sort of stranger than fiction quality that abounds through the novel where, you know, as we've talked about a few times, the as weird and strange as this book is, it's only as weird and strange as the historical record. Mm. If not slightly less weird and less strange. Right. Although, I don't know. It's probably weirder and stranger, but not by much. Yeah, I've never seen or heard of a um, a man in a hot air balloon throwing pies at a full-blown army plane and causing it to either go down or go away. So Slotherbo arrives in Nordhausen and links up with a witch named Jelly Tripping. They go to her sort of blown-out, roofless apartment or something like that, um, make love, and then she receives this post via owl. With all this information, she then starts to try to feed Slothrop, including something about the Schwarzgerat, um, which I know will become important later, but I, was, I thought the audience might be confused reading this term and not really knowing what it is, and I was wondering if... Yeah, it comes up in section two when Slothrop finds that manifest of the weird rocket parts and finds the... Zero 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 serial number, yeah. and then a device called the SG, uh, later called the Esgerat, later called the Schwarzgerat, which just means black device in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's cleverly named in the sense that it sounds like such a cipher. And with the rocket, the Esgerat is kind of one of the big components that Slothrop is going to be seeking. And that journey is what kind of winds him through the zone through mm-hmm. this entire section. Gotcha. It's like a. I mean, it's not literally a MacGuffin because it is revealed to be a thing that I don't want to give away. Yes. But it's a MacGuffin in the sense that it's used to to motivate the plot. Right. And that's its key importance at this point. <clears throat> Indeed. So after that, Slothrop sort of delves into the underground Mittelwerke complex. I wanted to just clarify something. We talked with Jordan Bim about Pienemunde. Mm-hmm. And this is... Is not that place? No, Pinamunda was the rocket launch site, okay. uh, which is on the sort of northern end of Germany. So the rockets were being manufactured there and then I think sent to Holland and sent across the North Sea. Pinamunda is where they tested a bunch of the V2 rockets and where the first successful V2 rocket was tested and launched. But a lot of them were being manufactured at Mittelwerk. Uh, Using slave labor from the Dora concentration camp, which mm-hmm. abutted Middlework, which again we talked about with Jordan. Yes. So they're not the same place. Yeah. Um, this this chapter is sort of more of like an almost Looney Tunes type chapter. Yeah, you have like the the getaway and him swinging from a cable, like. Like yeah. a Mission Impossible parody. And there's like an underground mad scientist lab that he yes. goes to at some point. And he gets rescued by a mad scientist of sorts, right? Right. Or rescued by someone else who I can't remember. Glimpf. Glimpf. Glimpf, yeah. So does he matter at all? Because he just comes and goes. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to answer a question like that. Like, he doesn't reappear in the novel. But okay, so then no. No. But he matters in the sense that no. he serves this point of the that plot. It doesn't matter. Right. That's a, he does these throwaway characters all the time just to do something yeah. sort of tangible. You don't get hundreds of characters that all have uh, plots and psychologies yeah. and full resolved narratives and all that. Well, you might not get one that has that in this novel, right. but that's up for the critics to decide. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to read a little quote from this section as well because I think maybe in episode zero or episode one we were talking about 
the rocket as a phallic symbol and whether that was too obvious or whether that was actually what Pynchon was doing here. And this quote seems to answer that question. I'll just read it really quickly now. Beyond simple steel erection, the rocket was an entire system one. Away from the feminine darkness, held against the trophies of lovable but scatterbrained mother nature. That was the first thing he, meaning Einzian, was obliged by Weissman to learn. His first step towards citizenship in the zone. He was led to believe that by understanding the rocket, he would come to understand truly his manhood. And whether or not that's Pynchon saying that's accurate or not, it's definitely what Einstein believes via his sort of tutor, Weissman. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about too about how one of the funny like jokes of this book is how it takes kind of like a throwaway eye rolly joke that you know rockets are a phallic symbol and almost takes it seriously and explores it so we're talking about that idea of the rocket being an entire system first of all the german word for the v2 was the aggregate four and mm. aggregate can just mean like aggregate like stuff or a complete system of parts uh so in that sense it was a total system of embodying their approaches to warfare, science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it also kind of casts back to this almost Cartesian dichotomy between uh, Mother Nature being, you know, in its very name, kind of feminine or or weak-willed or something like that, right. uh, and science and rationality as embodied by the rocket being strong mm-hmm. and stiff and masculine and all those things. Yes. Uh, I don't think that those are things that Pinchon necessarily believes gotcha. because they are being articulated by, like, the most insane characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if we want to talk about the ro- rocket as being a phallic symbol, there might be more to it than just the fact that it looks like a penis. Yeah, well, it may not be what Pinchin believes, but it's what, you know, uh, uh, Werner von Braun believed. Definitely. that, or, or, or even the idea that, like, scientific rationality in these things it's are... Masculine. Asso- yeah, are associated with the masculine. Yeah. Uh, that's what's being explored in that section. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, something else I was curious about is um, we learn that Einzian is sort of a figurehead of this n- now real Schwarzkommando, but we also have a Ambedini character who seems to be sort of like the head of another faction. Um, I was wondering basically what the hell that's all about. Yeah, so Einzian and Ambedini are not quite rivals at this point, but it's clear that they have diverging views of what the purpose of the rocket is. Uh, And we should say that they are scavenging to build their own rocket called the 00001. And I kind of just want to put a pin in that for a bit because this debate kind of comes to a head between them later and there's almost this factional fallout. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a classic case of uh, the Millionaire's Club versus the Youngblood in WCW. Well, also in this section, we get a lot of Einstein sort of musing on the idea of racial suicide. Sort of it's the dignified response to like a colonial atrocities. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about this with Elizabeth. And, you know, I think what's happening here is Pinchon is exploring this idea of the colonized mentality adopting almost the agenda of the colonizer, meaning that Einzian under subjugation by Weissman, you know, as we just talked about how he sort of hook, line and sinker taken up this idea of the rocket as this masculine system. Uh, he sees it as a way of 
what he thinks of as completing the colonial project. Now, for him, the completion of the colonial project is total global genocide, the destruction of everyone on planet Earth. Uh, it's at once a way of taking colonialism to what Einstein sees as its final conclusion, but also in this weird kind of rebellious and like vaguely ennobled way, resisting that. Because in his mind, he knows that his people are just going to disappear from planet Earth due to being killed by colonizers due to declining birth rates. And he almost sees global suicide as a way of taking ownership of his own destruction. You know, there's people who talk about suicide like this in a kind of cavalier romantic way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is kind of the attitude that Einzian is adopting. Sure. Okay. Um, moving on. I mean, this isn't as much of a question as just a callback. So earlier, way earlier, we talked about David Foster Wallace being sort of kith and kin, if that's the right phrase. I think so. With Pinchon. Um, I just wanted to make a small observation that at the beginning of Chapter 4 of Part 3, Slothrop and Jelly Tripping are standing atop uh, the Brocken Mountain, and they're gazing out, and their shadows stretch all the way over the earth. And it's, ca it's called Brocken Gespenst. I mean, this may or may not be relevant, but the same thing happens in Infinite Jest, I believe. Oh really? Yeah. Where like the where two characters stand atop of a mountain. I think it's in Arizona. Oh, with those two guys who are like discussing. Well, one like yeah, it's like a spy dressed as a woman. Or I haven't read it in long enough. But <laughs> right. you know that one character who's always dressed as a woman. Yeah, yeah, and they and they talk about like mash reruns and shit like that, and what to do with the videotape. Yeah, it's yes, what to do with the videotape, I believe. Right. They're they're also part of like some sort of deep state espionage type situation yeah like one is a double agent and one is a triple agent yes yes god i haven't, I haven't read, read it in like, so long yeah, so the either. audience is probably blowing their brains out because we got it all wrong but <laughs> i just thought there's a tangible thing um although it is a real world phenomenon okay this is an interesting question for me especially just because i follow a lot of weird fash conservative twitter accounts just out of curiosity sure and something they're all obsessed with is transhumanism not like transgenderism, but the idea of man and machine becoming one or man and animal becoming one, you know, body modification. So Chicharine has gold thread work in his knee and a silver plate in his head. Um, I've never heard of a surgery that gives you gold threads in your knee. So I was, it seems a little like out there. I was just wondering if you had a, a read on what this is doing in the text. So I don't think it's a quite like a transhumanist thing. I know what you mean about like the Silicon Valley weirdos who are like, we're going to live for a million years and I'm going to upload my brain into a computer, mm -hmm. even though I'm the stupidest asshole on planet Earth. And I would be the worst person to want to live forever. <laughs> but I think it's like more of this kind of melding of man and machine, which recurs uh, in Pinchon's writing. I believe there's an Android character in V that I can't remember the name of that kind of goes on and on about this. Uh, but certainly by the time we get to the end of Gravity's Rainbow, when certain things, wink, wink, are revealed, wink, wink, mm. uh, that melding of man and machine will become totally clear. And I think what Pinchon is articulating is that humanity as this kind of like individual race of human beings with dreams and goals, et cetera, are being subsumed into a kind of cold logical calculus that is represented by the machine. You know, this is something that people outside of Thomas Pinchon have talked about with the Second World War. I mean, the German critics of the Frankfurt School who talked about the Holocaust, who almost saw it as uh, 
not an affront to, but the logical conclusion mm -hmm. of something like Fordist models of manufacturing. Right. That when you make human beings and human systems more machine-like, it will naturally obliterate morality and ethics and any sense of, of right and wrong. So I think we see Chicharine as being a character that's sort of in conversation with that idea because he's like part metal, part man, part mm -hmm. gold. But I think like some other characters in the book, as I mentioned, I think Chicharine, he's introduced as being villainous, but he come, becomes increasingly sympathetic. Right. And I think a good way to find out if a character is sympathetic in Pinchon is like <laughs> – would you, know, you want to smoke a J with them? <laughs> that, and it's like, uh, if they're in charge of something, they're usually bad. But if they're like Slothrip, where it's like, you're a pawn, or like Chicharine, where it's like, you're a functionary basically being shuttled around on make-work missions, mm -hmm. these are the kind of people that Pinchon has sympathy for. Uh, I, I don't know if it makes sense to call them like working class characters, but they're people who are only kind of glimpsing the conspiracy or the truth through a keyhole. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like they're characters who have desires that aren't the desires of the entity for which they function, but their own individual desires. I mean, Chicharine has a desire that has nothing to do with his official duties. Right. His desire to root out and destroy his brother is this kind of like, and his desire to understand what the Kyrgyz light is. These are sort of private missions that he's pursuing while he's essentially there scavenging rocket parts for the Soviets. But, you know, the, the book constantly makes this distinction between uh, the elect or the elite and the uh, preterite using kind of Calvinist terminology. And I think the elect are always villainous and the preterite or the passed over are always the kind of heroic characters who you want to root for in this book and in life i would say well nobody likes a winner <laughs> people like a loser losers are beautiful like Facts. leonard cohen said but if people like a loser are they a loser That's uh the question. <laughs> if they keep losing then yeah <laughs> it seems like chicharine's uh duties for the soviets were was like a lot of linguistic battles and stuff like that i was going to ask you about that yeah, the, that whole section with Chicharine talking about Turkic alphabet reform is so interesting. And it's like one of the things in the book, even having read it three times, that just like makes me feel stupid. Uh, but I do think that like a theme that emerges, especially in this section and one of the big themes of the book, is that the new form of global currency in this increasingly internationalized world is information uh, and that a story about about alphabet reform and about uh, Kyrgyzstan and countries in Central Asia having to essentially change how they conceive of words and language and therefore the world is this kind of metaphor for how reshaping the economy of information essentially reshapes how we consider knowledge and how we view the world. I think it's always a cop-out to say that like this novel is about language, mm -hmm. but I think there is a way in which it is a little bit about language. Yeah. But also it's like the entire character of Chicharine, it's like clear that he is being positioned as just a total bureaucratic functionary in the same way that someone like Slothrop is yeah. or Slothrop was before he sort of makes his escape or thinks he makes this escape. Mm -hmm. So the organization of those governments and those nations as hyper bureaucratized, you know, dork states yeah. uh, is similar whether you're in the, quote, Western world or the, quote, Eastern bloc. Right. Which all seems to dissolve at this point in the novel anyway. Right. You have all of them working with and against each other at the top, at the drop of a hat. Right. So in this episode, we get into the zone. Mm -hmm. 
what did Madonna say? Get into the zone. Get into the groove. Never mind. Well, we get into the groove of the zone, and we introduce a new thread in Gravity's Rainbow. Well, we don't introduce it. The author, Thomas Pinchon, introduces it. But we are introducing thinking about it. And that is the Herero peoples of Southwest Africa, and specifically German colonialism in Southwest Africa. Uh, we don't know anything about this stuff. So our guest is Elizabeth Baer. She served as the Ida E. King Distinguished Visiting Scholar in Holocaust Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey from 2016 to 2017. And she continues as a research professor in English and African Studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. She's the editor and author of four books. The key one here that we read for this episode is The Genocidal Gaze from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. She walks us through a ton of issues. So without further ado, let's hear from Elizabeth Baer. Um, I think it might help to start with some historical context. We tend to hear more about French, British, and even Belgian imperialism on the African continent. So where does Germany fit into this picture? So interestingly, Germany um, came quite late to imperialism. Uh, Bismarck was worried about the financial uh, commitment that would be involved. So he was very reluctant. Um, Protestant and Catholic missionaries had gone already to the country we now call Namibia, which during Germany's colonization was called German Southwest Africa. They had been there trying to convert um, the indigenous people to Christianity. And um, in 1883, a German citizen uh, sailed out of Hamburg to, uh, I'll just call it Namibia, um, but German Southwest Africa then, and he uh, bought land. He wanted to set up a trading post. Um, he thought he might become rich. He might discover gems in, um, in the land. And uh, in, uh, the, in 1885, two years later, Bismarck hosted the infamous uh, Berlin Conference um, in Germany. And this brought the heads of several European countries together. And believe it or not, they laid an enormous map of um, what they thought of as the dark continent, Africa, uh, on a table and literally divided up the continent, assigning one part to France and one part to Belgium and so forth and so on. Even though you're right, we don't tend to think of Germany first as um, a, a big colonizer. In the end, they did uh, have quite, quite an extensive set of colonies. But it's important to know that the only settler um, colony was 
German Southwest Africa. Now, can you give us a sense of uh, in German Southwest Africa, present day Namibia, how those colonies were administered? I mean, what did life look like for colonizer and colonized? In 1884, Bismarck agreed to take the land that this individual man, Luteritz, had bought under the um, aegis of uh, the Reich. In, in 1884. And the following year, the Reich sent a man named Heinrich Goring uh, as the first governor of the colony. He is the father of Hermann Goring, oh, wow. who was one of Hitler's henchmen. Um, and Hermann, the son, learned the lessons of power and racism deception, racial hierarchy at his father's feet, and he put them to work as the head of the Luftwaffe, the, the Nazi Air Force. We think of the term Lebensraum, a Nazi term, uh, as a Nazi term. It means living space or living room. But actually, a man named uh, Frederick Ratzel developed this concept of Lebensraum in 1897 to justify these land grabs. And basically the idea was that the indigenous people were just raising cattle. They weren't farming the land in, in the Western sense, Western European sense. And so the Germans said, they're wasting the land. We have a right to have the land. So the Herero and Nama people are the two largest ethnic groups then, not now because of the genocide began to fight back and um, armed combat between the Germans and the indigenous people went on for over a decade. And finally, there was the Battle of Waterberg um, in an area in northern Namibia where there is uh, water, hence the term berg meaning mountain. Um, there was a, a kind of one of those old fashioned battles where people face off against each other. And the Germans created a pincher movement, which forced the indigenous people who survived the shooting uh, into the Omaheke Desert, which is a very dry place. And then the Germans chased after them. So this is the beginning of um, the genocide as it affected the Herero people. And that was in August 1904. In October of that year, a German general who in other colonies had been known as a, a vicious genocidaire um, named Lothar von Trotta issued a notorious proclamation calling for the extermination of the Herero and Nama. 80% uh, of the Herero people died in the genocide and 50% of the Nama were killed amounting, though the numbers are, you know, difficult to determine, but probably between 80 and 100,000 people were killed. I think um, when talking about resistance and rebellion, we're also interested in other reactions. Um, was there an opposite reaction? Did colonial subjects learn or gain anything from their genocidal overlords or adopt, you know, their colonial worldview? Uh, we're asking because one of the characters in Gravity's Rainbow goes a little mad and begins dreaming of destroying the whole world. So uh, in post-colonial studies, there's a concept called colonization of the mind. And I, I think this is what you're, you're getting at, you're asking about. Um, so did the colonial subjects learn from their genocidal overlo overlords? Um, 
you know, they learned a lot of the wrong things, you might say. Mm. So even after the imperialists physically remove themselves from a country, um, they leave behind their imperialist ideology, which is essentially a racial hierarchy. And this is a really key aspect of my book, The Genocidal Gaze. Um, this is ingrained in the minds of the indigenous people. So after decades of experiencing violence, theft, the oppressive exercise of power, dictatorship, the indigenous people have very little left um, about of their own way of life before colonization. Um, they've been told their religion is useless. Um, they've been told they must become Christians, et cetera, et cetera. Another post-colonial concept that's really useful here in response to this question is the notion of the mimic men. And this uh, idea suggests that indigenous people internalize what was valued and exercised by the colonizer and they begin to imitate it. And sometimes this even goes as far as clothing. So if you see um, memorials that are being held in, um, in Namibia today for the victims of the genocide, you will see um, Herero and Nama men wearing khaki army uniforms, um, which seems very bizarre under the circumstances. Take these two concepts together, colonization of the mind and the mimic man. And yes, um, the colonized learn from their colonizer, but it's not really um, very helpful. It's interesting. And, you know, this is kind of an aside for people who are reading along, but the character in Gravity's Rainbow, the Herrero character, Einzian, seems to sort of uh, have these twin ideologies. He's at the one hand a rebel who wants to kind of uh, overthrow the Nazis and is storming through Europe with his uh, group of commandos. But then the only way he can see to uh, get a future for him and his people is to destroy the entire world. This idea that you're taking the colonial project to its logical end by right. perpetrating what he calls world suicide. Uh, okay. it, it's at once an act of rebellion and an act so delimited by the, the possibilities that have been imposed that it becomes kind of uh, tragic in a sad sense, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in your book, uh, you call the uh, German extermination of indigenous peoples in German Southwest Africa the first genocide. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how it meets the criteria. The, the word genocide was not created until after World War II, and it was created by a man named Raphael Lemkin. Um, he uh, so to answer the other part of your question, the first genocide of the 20th century has always been thought to be the Armenian genocide, which took place in 1915. Lemkin was a Polish Jewish lawyer, and he um, saw what was happening uh, in Namibia and uh, compared it to what had happened in Armenia. It was the Armenians killed at the hands of the Turks. And uh, he became very frightened about what was going on in, uh, in Germany at the time in the Third Reich. And uh, he, he decided he needed to flee Poland and um, tried to convince his family to do the same on the basis of comparing uh, what was going on in the Third Reich right then to what had happened in Armenia, the buildup toward the genocide in Armenia. 
his parents thought he was crazy, but he left and came to the United States. And he devoted the rest of his life to getting um, this word genocide, a word he coined using part Greek and part Latin, because he felt very strongly that if there was a word for genocide, then there was a concept for genocide. And that is how language works. Uh, if we um, have a word for it, then we understand there is such a thing. And yet, when um, current day Namibia brought a, a lawsuit in the district court of Washington, D.C. Um, against the Germans, which our country's law allows, um, for reparations uh, all these decades later, uh, it was thrown out of court because the Germans claimed it happened before 1948, so it couldn't be a genocide. Wow. So a totally semantic defense. <laughs> it's yeah. such a lawyer's defense. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Professor, you also work with the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Do you think that the German genocidal program in Southwest directly informed the extermination programs of the Nazis? Um, is that, was that where the methodology was established? I believe that, uh, at least in part. So th this is a an issue that it is highly controversial. I'm going to try to go through it um, carefully and specifically. So Holocaust studies as a field really began in the mid to late 1960s. And the initial focus, as is appropriate, was on the victims, and then it was on the perpetrators. And now the, the field of Holocaust studies has moved toward a study of transnational aspects of genocide. And this is sometimes referred to as the post-colonial turn in Holocaust studies. And there's always been an argument within the field as to whether the Holocaust is unique or is it one of many genocides. Um, Historians um, began to see the links among the genocides. Um, for example, Hitler uh, studied the genocide of Native Americans, and he imitated some of what was done. Hitler is quoted as saying, who now remembers the Armenians? And that's on the wall of the Holocaust Museum in Washington. He felt like he could do this with impunity. And so scholars began to ask themselves, what are the connections between imperialism and genocide? Is imperialism always genocidal? Uh, some scholars, and I include myself among this, began to develop something that came to be called the continuity thesis, which is still controversial. And before I go any further, I want to make two caveats when I'm talking about the links between the Herero genocide and the Holocaust. First of all, it is not a causal link. It's rather continuity. So I'm not saying that what the Germans did in their colony caused the Holocaust. And secondly, it's equally important not to set up a hierarchy of which genocide was worse. And I think we must not situate the deaths of Africans as important only as a kind of foreshadowing of European deaths. Um, to do so, obviously, would be very racist. The, you know, Gravity's Rainbow was published in 1973. You know, you mentioned the Armenian genocide, which is something that I feel like people weren't even really talking about until the 
the 80s and 90s. I mean, what was the status of the Herrero genocide in the 60s and 70s? I mean, when Pinchon was writing about it, would this still be considered, uh, you know, a lost genocide? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this question. So another concept in political, in um, uh, post-colonial studies is colonial amnesia. And the Germans repressed, comma, forgot, comma, intentionally hid uh, the genocide that had occurred. And uh, what the Germans did after that genocide was that they, after Germany lost the colony, after they lost World War I, and so that, um, you know, the military and so forth comes home, and they publish these god-awful biographies of themselves or of like autobiographies, memoirs, glorifying their deeds in, um, in Namibia as military heroes. But what had really happened was hidden in the archives. And this is such a, a fascinating story. The archives were closed after World War I, so no one would know what had happened. And then when the Nazis came to power, they kept the archives closed. So again, very few people knew what had happened. And um, in uh, the after the uh, wall was put up in the 1960s, uh, a man named Drexler, who was um, raised in the GDR, the communist section of Berlin, um, was doing his PhD, and the archives were stored, interestingly, <laughs> in Potsdam, which is also in the GDR. And so he was one of the first people to gain access to these archives. Um, you know, Lenin said that um, capitalism and genocide uh, were um, the highest crimes. And um, so the communists in the GDR didn't care at all if these sort of repressed past of the um, German military came to light. So Drexler wrote a book, which was published first in Germany. It was his PhD thesis. And then it was translated into English shortly thereafter. And that was really the first time that people began to know what had happened. And so, yes, um, Pynchon would have really been onto something. There was very little known about this genocide in the 1970s. Yeah, well, I just I, have I, like I, a very, I have a very small follow-up just out of curiosity about the continuity theory, is there a consensus among people studying that when it begins, like when the continuity, where the continuity gets traced back to? Okay, again, a great question. So all these military men go back to Germany, right? And they bring with them this deadly ideology, this sense that they are white people and they um, deserve to have the land and they deserve to be in power and to dominate um, these lesser subhuman races, quote unquote, um, they create children's games about um, German military and how heroic they are. So all, all the time between when World War I ends in 1918 and when Hitler comes to power in 1933, there is this glorification of the German military, this, this um, uh, investing in the value of the white race. 
going on in the country in educational systems, through the churches, in periodicals, and even in the Reichstag, the, the parliament. Uh, so that in some ways you could say, not everybody to be sure, but there was a kind of ripeness for the ideology that Hitler brought with him uh, when he came to power in, uh, in 1933, because those were ideas that had been floating around Germany for quite a while. Professor Elizabeth Barrett, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book, The Genocidal Gaze, about the Herrera people and about Germany's deadly exploits on the African continent. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, and I, I look forward to reading this book. When I was writing my book, I wanted to focus just on African uh, fiction and German fiction. But a lot of people urge me to read Pynchon, so it's about time. Well, thanks again to Professor Elizabeth Baer for coming on. What an exciting and edifying chat mm. about the Herero peoples and German colonialism. I'll be straight up. Do it. I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah. I'll be straight up too. I really didn't know much of that stuff she said. <sighs> I'll be even straighter up. I don't know anything at all about anything. And anything I learn, I learn from doing this podcast. So in the next episode, we'll be going through Gravity's Rainbow Part 3, Chapters 6 to 13. Part three is so long, so we're going to be doing a couple episodes on it. Uh, but stick it out. I feel like, you know, this is a part of the book where people could really get lost. Uh, but trust me, if you make it through the third part of this book and the next couple episodes of this podcast, then it's smooth sailing. It's where you get lost, but it's also where things, in a way, start to make sense or where the form reveals itself, I believe. Yeah, definitely. And it's there's so much stuff in this where... Even if you're kind of losing the plot, so to speak, which again, you can always listen to this or read guides or whatever. There's so many just like fun little riffs on different ideas as we talked about that it's just kind of like a pleasure to read it, even if you are lost. And honestly, if you don't find it a pleasure to read, you don't have to read it. If you don't like reading a guy fucking going on about German runology uh, and, you know, what a shadow looks like stretched across the entire globe, mm. you don't have to read this book. You can read yeah. it. You can read anything else. Those, I definitely think German runology is interesting. So if you that's why you have all those tattoos. Of hey, all those... Sh 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 <laughs> no. Um. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you the next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.